Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show here on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the double L team, Lyle and... Lawson. Lawson. What are you thankful for this morning? What am I thankful for? Okay, so unfortunately it's raining outside, which which is sad. We had a good run, Lyle. We had... We had two days, three days... Of sun. Yeah. My ground was... Well, you couldn't see the water sitting on top of it anymore. Wow. The water was actually sitting under it. It still squelched underfoot, but... <laughs> well, yeah, we had some we had some, uh, some dry, sunny times, but unfortunately the rain has come back. But that being said, um, I have a couple of friends who are graduating from uni today, and we're having a big party and getting together and uh, spending time and celebrating their, their time at uni and how they overcame it, because, you know, that's kind of... The point of university is not to stay there forever, but to eventually leave so that you can earn money. And That's right. Both That's of them, gra- both of them graduated as nurses. They've both been registered. They've both got jobs, and God is really blessing them. So we're getting together to 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 celebrate that. Well, like they have their literal graduation day. You know, they've got their gowns and their caps and everything. They're going to be walking. You know, picking up their degree and shaking the chancellor's hand and heading off doing those kinds of things. But yeah, we'll be there like so supporting how, them. How many graduations does a university have in a year? Do they have like um, one every semester or do they? Because I mean, usually you think of graduation as being that big event at the end of the year. Yeah, no. So I think they have one every semester. Like this is the first yeah. semester graduation. So, and it goes over a number of days. So, like they do a different department each day. So today is specifically like health students. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. It is time for the 100-point question for our quiz. As we get the quiz kicked off, Lawson will bring it to you right now. For 100 points, the Bible says, What hard-working insect does the book of Proverbs tell lazy people to learn from? 0491-064-669 is the number to call uh, for 100 points, which that... Question is a 100-point question. You can win a Faith FM bookmark and bumper sticker, or you can get your points on the board. Continue to work your way through the quiz. If you answer every single question correct, you can win every single prize, just like Kayla did yesterday. But again, that question was, what hardworking insect does the book of Proverbs tell lazy people to learn from? And the answer is not Lyle. Even though Lyle is a hardworking insect man, Mm. that is not the answer. That is not, no, it's so, definitely not the so answer. So 0491 All right, let's have some positively different news. Let's stop talking about me and have some positively different news. Okay, positively different news. Now, this is a story that we've, we've kind of been covering a little bit, you know, uh, Every so often, occasionally, some of the uh, some of the goings on of self driving cars, specifically in San Francisco, because that is where they test them. That is like the hub of testing autonomous self driving vehicles. Like I'm not just talking about like you know when your Tesla goes on autopilot mode. I mean like you know Toyota and GM and all of these companies are out there testing like their autonomous vehicles. They're just driving around the the city all day and collect data and see if anything happens. Last time I talked about autonomous vehicles. I think I talked about the story about how they all got backed up in one cul-de-sac because they didn't know that it was a road. And so, like, they, like, there was, like, 20 cars, like, self-driving cars that all got backed up and then all had to do a simultaneous U-turn and struggling and whatnot. But, um, so, one of those brands that 
make self-driving cars that test them in San Francisco. And I think they test them in San Francisco because it's relatively close to Silicon Valley, where a lot of this electrical technology, like the electronics of it are being developed. Yes. And it's also just a good city to test because you don't quite have the traffic of Los Angeles. But it is a pretty full you place. A, you have a, a, a high level of complexity too. That's it's right. Not the easiest, you know, wherever you've got a city that has a major harbour network, yeah, like San Francisco does. So if you look at your LA, the harbour network is, you know, just a strip of sand along the beach kind of thing. That's right. Whereas, you know, you have this big harbour and you've got a similar situation to what you've got in Sydney. Sydney's actually way worse, mm-hmm. where it becomes a logistical nightmare to build any kind of effective road system. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. They, Put they, these things through their paces. That's right. That's what they're doing. Now, um, a San Francisco police officer tried to pull over an autonomous vehicle. And it didn't pull over? And so they switched the lights on, and the autonomous vehicle was like, uh, okay. The, it can, like, sense the lights, and yes. so it'll find, like, the safest place to go and stop. Yes. Uh, but the police officers didn't know that this was a self-driving vehicle. Right. It didn't have the usual branding on it for some reason. It was just, it was just getting around. It just looks like a... Chevy. This one was specifically so. There's a there's a brand. It's called Cruise, and that's no, it's not a Chevy. Um, it is a GM. So, well, G- General Motors is like their parent company, and they they are this company that's developing these self driving cars. And so, this Cruise model, uh, this um, self driving car, it's you know, it was driving around without its headlights on. Now, that's probably not a problem because self driving cars, I imagine. Like, well, they need to see things, but the cameras in there are probably like night vision and stuff anyway, like infrared. So the self-driving car is just driving around doing its thing without headlights on at like 10 o'clock at night. It could get run into. It could get run into. And so that's what the, you know, the police officer is like, hey, someone's just driving around like late at night without their... their Which is not that uncommon in a city. That's right. It happens from time to time. I've done it on occasion. So they're like, oh, let's pull this, this thing over. Then they pull it over. And then they walk up to the side. There's a video here of them like walking up to the side of the car and just being absolutely perplexed and confused because it's got a steering wheel. It's got pedals and everything, but there's just no one in it. And then they start like looking around the car and like looking underneath the car. And they're like, did this person just run away? Cause we pulled them over for not having headlights on. Like <laughs> what's going on? And they're like, they're like so confused yeah. <laughs> until eventually, uh, they see like the cruise logos, like within the car itself. They see the cruise logo on the dash and they realize, Oh, this is an autonomous vehicle. <laughs> and they had like everything filming on their body. So who, gets, who gets the fine? That's right. So driving without your lights on so this is now the big legal challenge um, yeah send I, it to the company that made the thing i said i think they said ultimately like they gave out no citations but what they actually said the reason the headlights were off was not because of the autonomous vehicle failing but was because of human error like the person who set it off forgot to turn the headlights on well then find that person so find that person right that didn't but end shouldn't up the autonomous anyone. vehicle know that it's dark and switch its headlights on automatically well, well this is why they're testing it in san francisco that's why they're doing yes. this so they, they just, can find out they found out but ultimately like this is the legal challenge is like whose fault is it do, do we send it to the owner of the car the company itself the like who is responsible and in this case it's the company itself doing testing but in the future when people own these cars like Whose fault is it if it does the wrong thing? And I think ultimately, like, when you buy this car, they'll probably have a terms of service that it's like anything that this car does incorrect is actually the driver's fault or something like that. I think so. But this is, like, a big question. I think the responsibility is 
with the owner of the vehicle, if something like the headlights don't switch on or something rather like that, it's like you need to take control of the vehicle and pull it over the side of the road and get it fixed before you continue on your journey. But this is the thing, Lyle, is that in this case and in another case that I believe I discussed on radio maybe about a month ago about someone driving a Tesla and autopilot, it's that how... How can you know whether it's human error or car error or company error or whatever it may be? Because like the story that I covered with the Tesla, there was a Tesla, the woman claimed she was driving in autopilot mode and it hit a pedestrian and then killed them. It was like a hit and run. And so then now it's like she is in this like massively- She's blaming the car. She's blaming the car. Because Hunter, if you like hit someone and kill them, like that's- that's manslaughter and you go to jail. Like, That's right. especially, you know, in a case where it was very clear that she was driving negligently if she was driving. Uh, but this is the thing. Was she? And now they need to do all this like testing with the, the car itself. They need to look at the, the, um, the telemetry and everything to understand. And it's, now you have, so this was like a Tesla, which is a car that you drive and then put in autopilot mode and it will drive along like on the freeway. Um, this is just a fully autonomous vehicle. Like, you're not even touching the thing. It just goes by itself. So then, who do you blame? Whose fault is it if this, you know, it, like, we start here with, like, turning the headlights off, but then there's running a stop sign, there's running a red light, there's uh, hitting someone and killing them. Like, whose fault is it at that point? So, this is, this is like, a really interesting space to watch. It'll be good to see, like, when legislation finally comes out, like... Whose fault is it? That's that's the you see what happens. The question. What happens if a terrorist hacks into a self-driving car and drives it into a crowd of people? That's right. What happens if a I don't know the terrorist hacks into a self-driving car and kills the person inside? There's going to be some legal this complications is, here. This is this is intense. This it is, is like it and is. This and is, wow. And so the archaic person in me, you know, and this is I'm I'm stealing a wild quote right now. Just says, become vegetarian and buy a V8 because you have your carbon offset. <laughs> yes. you, you have your carbon offset in buy being vegetarian. vegetarian. <laughs> and then you just buy a, a big, powerful V8. Muscle car. Muscle car. And you can't From have... like the 1960s. And if you go too fast and hit someone, well, then it's definitely your fault. It's always <laughs> your fault. Anything you do wrong with... Anything that goes wrong with that is always <laughs> going to be your fault. It's on you. That's right. Hey, actually, I got something quickly to discuss um, some other positively good news that actually Shell, producer Shell sent me. Um, this has to do with eating and food and coronavirus. And ultimately, they've found um, that the best food to eat to fight and combat COVID-19. Uh, researchers have found that if you eat broccoli, kale, and Brussels sprouts, they have a chemical in them that makes you like 30 times less likely of catching COVID. Oh, yes. I love Brussels sprouts. So this chemical, it's called sulfurophane. Uh, sol- sulfurophane. Um, and it is found in these vegetables. And if you consume it, you are just protected. Now, I'm not the biggest Brussels sprouts guy. And I, I can eat broccoli, but I'm not a huge... I'm, not a hu- I'm pretty indifferent to these kind of vegetables. But I love kale. Do you like kale, Lyle? Kale's not my favourite. I like, I love broccoli and I love Brussels sprouts. Okay. Kale a bit less. Okay, because, well, broccoli and Brussels sprouts are usually like a steamed veggie. Yes. Or you like fry it up. Whereas steamed. I love kale salad, dude. Because uh, there's so many kale haters out there and they just have never eaten good kale salad. If you've eaten a good kale salad with a nice dressing and like almonds and 
grated carrot and stuff. I don't oh, mind it. I don't man, mind it. You will love kale. I, People I, who hate as, kale as, are ch- literal children. You need to grow up. I do prefer <laughs> iceberg. I do prefer iceberg lettuce. Ah, oh, like yeah, iceberg lettuce slaps, but it's like kale is iceberg lettuce doesn't have this awesome chemical in it. It doesn't. Kale does. You're listening to the Breakfast Joe podcast on Faith FM, positively different. It is the Breakfast Show. The 200 point question is coming right now. What bird brought food to Elijah at the brook of Cherith? 0491-064-669 is the number to call if you know the answer. And for 200 points, you can win yourself an issue of Science Magazine or you can get your points on the board. Continue to work your way through the quiz. But again, that question was, what bird brought food to Elijah at the brook of Cherith? Oh, there you go. So if you know the answer, give us a call right now. Okay, we're going to start off with the Banana Shire in Queensland. They've just created a $10 bounty on cats. The Banana Shire. Yes. Okay, that's like an area, like so, a local yeah, council. It's a local show council in Queensland. Called Banana? You're getting sidetracked from the story. Forget the that, name that of it. Is, that is more interesting to me at this point, because I know this is it's just some Queensland. anti-cat propaganda. Okay, yes. all right, all right. Okay, they put out a bounty of cats. Why? Because they're, eating, because they're eating bananas? No, because they're eating birds. Ah, okay, okay. So the plan <laughs> is to remove... <laughs> The plan is to remove two and a half thousand cats minimum uh, from, wow. the, uh, from the from the region. So, what means are you allowed to do this by? Uh, this will be primarily by shooting. Oh, okay. So they're like, fellas, get the guns out. Yes, we're taking down the cats. Yes. Wow. Which is interesting because obviously you can't shoot on a you know you can only shoot on a rural property, so uh-huh. that sort of restricts it to domestic cats. But there's no requirement here that they check for chips or anything like that. So. If you want to cash in your cats, you kind of can. <laughs> la, la, la. Did you just say that restricts it to domestic cats? Are you just going to, like... Well, um, it doesn't... It doesn't... There's no restriction on it. You, you can... You can... Just shoot your own cat. <laughs> well, they're like, you I mean, hey, domestic cats kill 61 million birds a year. <laughs> One that is million. a lot. That's a oh, lot Lyle. Lyle is dying for this to happen in Newcastle. Like, Lyle well, is literally it cannot, shaking. It cannot and it will not happen in Newcastle because it can only happen on a rural property. Well, it can happen in the Hunter Valley. You fire a firearm in Newcastle and you're going to go to jail, and rightfully so. <laughs> Lyle is waiting for martial negligent. law like against cats. All right. That's, that is Lyle's, Lyle's no, desire. This is a good thing for... This is a good thing for our uh, native animals here in Australia. Okay, uh, that's what it's that's what it's all about. It's a it's a great piece of conservation uh-huh. um, that is taking place right I there, agree. and should be encouraged in lots of different places. We need to drastically reduce the number of cats that we have, and at ten dollars a head, it's actually fairly cheap compared to a lot of other methods that have been used to reduce cats. Mm-hmm. So you know, some of your baiting programs, aerial baiting, and so forth that they do for cats will cost you a lot more dollars per head than that. Mm-hmm. And so this is, I think it's a good move. Anyway, um, on to more serious news. And these are both positively different news stories. The Alabama government governor has just signed a bill which makes it a criminal offence to give gender-affirming care to anyone under the age of 19. Wow. So this is interesting because there's a bunch of states in the United States and there's quite a movement towards this where they have legislated against providing gender-affirming care to minors because they have recognised that a child cannot consent. child cannot provide consent. You know, we don't, mm-hmm. you don't let a minor buy a rattle can of paint. Why would you let them change their gender and have you know, permanent gender reassignment 
or you know chemical castration or any of these different things that uh, they might be going through. And so this is a really good bill. What's different about the Alabama bill is that it actually makes it a felony. Mm. It's actually a criminal offence. And it's interesting because a lot of people, you know, they listen to me here and they listen to some of the things I have to say about radical gender ideology and say against radical gender ideology. And they kind of, you know, they look at me as being a bit of an outlier and it's like, oh, yeah, Lyle's sort of not up with the times and all this kind of stuff. But you've got to recognise that these are major states in the United States that are recognising this and saying, no, that's actually criminal behaviour. Yeah. And you can go to jail for that. That's Mm -hmm. a felony right there. Mm Mm-hmm. And they will throw you in jail for it. So this is pretty full on. Um, it also bans schools from allowing students to choose uh, whatever facilities, bathrooms, change rooms, etc. they want to use based on their preference. Ooh, okay. So pretty much right now, if you, 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 can, you can choose whichever change room you want on That's any intense. day that you want. That's intense. In a lot of schools and uh, the governor has said look this is a no brainer uh, and this is not going we're not going to allow this this is going to be a felony if the school does this this is going to be a criminal offence we will throw you in jail if you do that. Wow. So wait, so 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 they're saying that this is a felony like a federal crime. Is that's that's what they mean by felony? I the, fed- the, word, the word felony is the word that is used. I have not looked up the definition of the word felony, but it is a criminal offence rather than a civil offence. So it's rather than being something uh, you get sued for, it's something you go get uh, for. Okay, okay, okay. Yes. I get it, I get it. Okay, so this is, uh, and they've also made it a criminal offence to teach radical gender ideology or to even teach anything about sex ed for K-5 to students. Yeah, good. Like 100%. Absolutely, because they have, in this piece of legislation, they have basically banned grooming of primary school students. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like, you know, I I think for the majority of people, I know for me growing up, it's like when you, it's like either at the end of year six or the start of year seven, which here in New South Wales is like either the end of primary school or the start of high school where they finally give you sex ed. And that's like the perfect time in which you need it because kids at that, like you've, you finally people are coming to the age where they can actually get pregnant and it's like, okay, we need this to add ed- information that you need to have right now. Yeah. You need, you need to know this, but up until that point, it's the responsibility of the parents. That's right. Don't like stop. Like, yes. This let is the grooming. Kids be kids. Let's yeah. play, let, let, let them play Legos and teddy bears and whatever mm-hmm. else they want to play with. That's right. Ugh. That's, so that's the- good to hear. Yes. This is fantastic. Kate, I think no, I, no normal person. <laughs> wants to have a conversation with a K to five year old child mm-hmm. that's not their you know there's not their child mm-hmm. about sex. Yeah. The only kind of person who wants to have that kind of conversation is a pedophile. Yeah. I, I actually really commend them for the kind of age range that they've decided here. Um because like I'm like, yeah, that's fantastic because you know, it just shows that they're not doing it because they're absolute, like, they, they, they can't, there's no room to be accused for being, like, a prude or something like that. Like, oh, you guys just hate sex and what are you trying to, like, Christianize, you know, uh, education or something like that. Like, no, they're, they're doing it, like, because of... Child protection. Pr- child protection and from a biological standpoint. Like, okay, this is this is when kids, you know, have this potential. This is what needs to happen. Okay, so moving from there to Florida, uh, the governor there, uh, Governor DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, has just signed a bill there which allocates $70 million to in support and encourage fathers to take an active role in their children. And the reason that he's done this, this is a really positive thing, is because they've got a massive problem with absent or non-existent fathers in 
the United States and particularly in Florida. So across the United States, you've got about 19 uh, million fatherless children. You've got around about 700 of those, uh, 700,000 of those are in Florida. So that's a big chunk wow. of fatherless children in Florida. And he's like, you know what, we're going to do something about this and we're going to allocate some money towards it and we're going to see what, what we can do to turn this situation So they'll, they'll pay dads to stay? Well, the uh, it provides for a whole slew of resources, uh-huh. uh, educational resources for dads and for children, mm-hmm. uh, legal resources for for, for dads, um, grants for non profit organisations that can show evidence based uh, fatherhood programs. Mm-hmm. They, there is uh, they're creating mentorship programs for kids that don't have fathers, and particularly mm-hmm. for students in schools that don't have fathers. And there's a number of non profit uh, mentorship programs that they're going to be supporting as well. Uh, they're doing a massive awareness campaign uh, and promoting the nuclear family as being the... Oh, let's go. Um, and they're also, this is an interesting one, they're doing a financial literacy program for young men. Because apparently they've identified this as being a major problem sure. in fatherlessness is that they're not financially literate, they don't know how to manage money and mm-hmm. so forth in today's modern world. And so they're going to provide a financial literacy program because they've identified that as being something that will contribute to good fatherhood. Mm. It passed with unanimous bipartisan support. Wow. The whole of Florida government got behind this, and that's really good to see. Um, and and DeSantis said, you know, this addresses a decades-long decline in fatherhood with a corresponding increase in crime. So... Somewhere between 70 and 99%, depending on the actual um, correctional centre, uh, of people who are in prison right now have no father. Mm. 90% of homeless people had no father. 70% of school dropouts had no father. 60% of youth suicides had no father. And so this is a no-brainer. And it's kind of you know the opposite of what evolution has been teaching because evolution looks at what is, goes on in nature where you know the male species turns up um, shares some sperm, disappears, and is never seen again. And because we've been bombarded with evolution for such a long time, we have come to the conclusion, well, that's a good model. Fathers are useless. We don't need them. You know, mothers can do it all. Go and have your kids and be a single mother. What's the problem here? And, of course, this has now been recognised as being absolute insanity. Mm-hmm. And there is a movement here to support the biblical model mm. rather than the evolutionary model, the model wow. that God gave to us. So there's some positively different news uh, stories that are happening around the world right now. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. We will now have our 300-point clue for the quiz, and it is this. How did Job, defending God's right to give and take away, describe himself upon entering and departing this world? 0491-064-669 is the number to call. For 300 points, you can win yourself a pocket sermon. But again, this question was, and listen carefully, guys. How did Job, defending God's right to give and take away, describe himself upon entering and departing this world? 0491-064-669. All right, if you know the answer, give us a call. But joining us on the phone right now is Jennifer Skews, who's going to be filling in for a couple of months while David Haupt is away getting treatment uh, for his cancer. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Now, Jennifer, you've uh, you've been on Faith FM before, filled in for David in the past. Before we get started, just give us yes. a little bit of background of uh, your experience, um, who you are and what you do. 
okay. I'm a health psychologist and at the moment I'm working in private practice, but I also do some community programs, especially at the moment with all the floods and things going on. And uh, I work part-time and I live on a beautiful area on the Gold Coast or the lower end of the Gold Coast, just in New South Wales. And I've been very blessed without having been flooded. So I have much to be grateful for. Okay, so this is interesting because both you and David were and are at ground zero for the floods that you know went through that whole region yes. right there. Thankfully, neither yes. of your houses were flooded uh, because you're obviously That's on right. high ground. But probably from different perspectives, you've been, both been dealing with a fair chunk of of fallout from the floods. What what have you been observing and yes. what kind of issues have you been facing with uh, the floods that have taken place? And where are we up to now uh, with the floods? I mean, we sort of, okay. they've disappeared out of the news a little bit. Well, they have because, and this is typical what happens, the trauma happens and we ended up with a second trauma and I think most places along the East Coast have where we actually had a second flood, not as bad as the worst that was like this year. Um, and people have done a big clean-up, and I find what happens, the community is brilliant. They rally forth, they help each other. Um, the donations up here were just incredible. It was more than anyone ever needed. So people are getting back into their homes. There are still some homes that are, have to be renovated and sort of refurbished and take months for some of them, um, but a lot of people are back in their homes, and that support stops. So they're then faced with the reality at the moment of um, recovering from the trauma of it. Um, so it's a time where people at the moment are healing the trauma more because they're out of that emergency zone. Um, there's still a lot of supports about, but it's like the isolation happening because the community is not buzzing anymore with lots of people. Um, so, yeah, so it's quiet. I think this is why it's not in the news because the emergency is over, but people are still in emergency mode. That's so when, uh, one yeah. of the problems. So when an emergency like this happens, I imagine that there's a, a, a kind of adrenaline that kicks in, you know, during the emergency. Absolutely. Everybody's working hard. Yeah. Everybody's focused on surviving. Everybody's focused on the emergency yeah. at hand and doesn't really yeah. have time to process the trauma that is taking place, you know, from the loss that they are experiencing Yes. Then you've got your recovery. Right. So many mm. people have gone there yep. and done so many good things. How long is this? Yes. Now that it's all gone suddenly quiet, yeah. Is is now yes. is now a more vulnerable time than at the peak of the crisis? Oh, absolutely. Um, we had floods in two thousand and seventeen, and the area I focus on is Kimbolgan and Mwilumbah. That's my closest area, and. Um, I had clients from the 2017 flood who have remained hyper-vigilant because every time it rains, is it going to be one of those rains where they're going to flood again? And I think people have settled down because it's been a good few years, but this is like revisiting what happened to them in 2017. And this flood was worse than back then. So people had more damage and more problems. So now um, it's uh, not trying to pick up the pieces. So definite trauma, even though they're, they're not getting the attention they were before. Um, so I have linked in with a couple of the clients I've had who are totally devastated. But one of the big triggers is every time it rains. 
it's uh, adrenaline kicks in, the fear kicks in, um, and they don't know what's going to happen. So that's a major problem. So we had a double flood event this time around where we had a major flood followed by a second one. Having yes. that having that second flood, how much damage does that does that actually do to the trigger where, you know, I guess, you know, you've had, you know, since yeah. 2017 you'd have it year after year after year where, you know, rains come through, days of rain, showers of yeah. rain, and nothing's happened. Yeah. But this time, you know, it, it starts to rain. And, well, actually something does happen and it does flood again. How much how much... How much more challenging does it make? Does that make it to deal with the trauma from sure. the event? Um, it, it adds it's a bit like that principle of insult to injury, and they're already struggling. So a lot of them are highly exhausted because, you know, I went down to help, and people can't imagine the devastation and what there is is mud and it stinks and it's causing. Um, hygiene problems and they couldn't drink the water. and So it's more than just the flood, it's the clean-up. And then a few days later or a week later, it happened again and people were flooded again, particularly along the riverbanks there. So they didn't have one clean-up, they had two clean-ups. So people are exhausted there. Um, some people have lost jobs, lost employment, lost a lot because of these floods. So it's actually multiples they're dealing with. Uh, and I guess there'd be some people who would be questioning, should we even clean up or should we just demolish yeah. the home and move on because, you know, 2017, yeah. 2022, 2022 again, this is happening yeah. too much. And, of course, that's tremendous loss. That's that's loss of the family home. That's loss of, yeah. your, of your property. There's a, there's Absolutely. A, yeah. Do people go through what's a period? Happened, of, yeah. What's happened up here is people's, value of places has plummeted. Anyone in a flood area has lost probably 200 grand on their house now. People don't want to buy. They can't sell. They at least have a couple more years where they have to regroup, hope they won't have another flood, get their homes up and running, and people start to forget and they want to buy because they like the area. So I had friends who wanted to sell, but there's no way. It's going to be a couple of years before they can do that. So that adds to that trauma, you can see how multifaceted it is. I mean, to lose that value on your home and you really would like to move but you're stuck in the trauma zone is it's like an added trauma. Mm-hmm. They're still stuck in it. Yeah. It's uh, very heartbreaking for a lot of people up here. We've You mentioned that a, a, a tremendous amount of community support has come into the yes. area. People have made significant donations yes. When people yes, bring that kind absolutely. of support, are they more likely to bring, you know, um, picks and shovels and roll up their sleeves and get muddy, or are they more likely, yes. or, or, or are you getting significant support coming through to support the work that you're doing, that Dave is doing, etc., in supporting people with yeah. their mental health? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what happens? Yes, um, several things there. Um, when the flood initially happened, I was down there. The- first day after when the water receded, uh, particularly in St. Bolgham and the Woolenbar, and um, there were hundreds of people. It was amazing that the community rallied forth. They came, people they wouldn't have even known came with shovels and their rubber boots and they came with uh, wheelbarrows and you could hardly move along the streets in those communities because so many people rallied forward. 
um, which was a wonderful thing. It really uplifted people. Uh, the, the fire trucks and that were there hosing down and eventually the army came in and I think they're still around and they were wonderful. They've done a huge job in helping the clean-up. Um, so, yeah, it was really a height of it activity and that's the contrast. Everyone feels supported and cared for and then of course once that diminishes um, they're still left with the aftermath. So but yes, it was just amazing to see so many people. It was incredible. Um, one of the other problems up here, when the first day that the floods hit, it cut off the M1 and there were trucks and these there was oh, a hundred or more trucks, I'd say, banked up. They couldn't get through for a couple of days. They couldn't go anywhere. So you've got all these truckies on the freeway. Um, it looked like a rally. It was just amazing. But what the locals did, they knew the truckies couldn't, they couldn't get food. They couldn't get anything to drink. So local people cooked, bought in barbecues, drinks for them. And it became a whole community where uh, these truckies were fully supported until uh, the freeway opened again, until the highway opened again. So it's very uplifting to see all that sort of thing, and and it's so good. Australia is amazing. I heard a comment from an American uh, lady who was uh, over here, and she said, it's incredible. The Australians are amazing people when there is an emergency, how much they give and rally for. So... It's uh, one of our, I think, our unique parts of our culture and our nature to want to help when there's emergencies and to do it, not just to think that actually action. Yes, indeed. So, which, yeah, psychologically, that's a wonderful thing. Um, I've had a couple of clients I will continue to work with now who I met through the 2017 club. Um, I'll be running a community program probably fairly soon now that this. Um, Aftermath is happening because that's when the trauma sets in, the reality. And so I'll be running some safe trauma recovery programs for communities. Um, so that is a way I can give something to them and help them. So we do it from our church, yeah, um, our local church. Yeah, the Melbourne church wasn't flooded, so they have been wonderful uh, being around and helping people. An amazing pastor who went from door to door knocking and helping people, you know, seeing if people were all right and being part of that community. So, um, Jennifer, tell me, tell me this. Now that now that we've reached that stage where, you know, the rest of Australia has moved on, we are now, yep. you know, we're now thinking about the war in the Ukraine, or we're thinking about the election, or whatever it might be, and we kind of forgotten about the floods. It's sort of definitely there in the back of our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's obviously, you've, you've talked about how this is the point where the depression can set in, where people are feeling more isolated, yes. the community yes. is not there giving the support that there was before. Is there, is there, is there local government funding? Is there, um, is there funding from charities, et cetera, to support the work that um, somebody like yourself does or like David Haupt does in caring yes. for the emotional yeah. needs of the people? Is there a continuing program to actually help these people deal with, you know, now they've survived the event, but can they survive, you know, emotionally? The aftermath, yes. Um, There are supports around. I find our local government uh, representatives have rallied forth and organised flood relief and distributing it. So it's fairly well organised, but that's more on the physical level. Um, Community 
um, the like community groups and things are supportive, and I've noticed they do offer things. And what I noticed in Timbolgan, what they're trying to do is for getting people to come in and run uplifting programs for them, just socially and rallying the community together. And I think they're a small community and they're exceptional in that they do look after each other. And there's a very strong group that organises a lot of this. Um, for myself, some of it, I do it as volunteer at this time for this sort of thing. But the, for me, the Medicare system is very supportive. Well, I have been with COVID, so um, I can see people give extra sessions to them um, and have contact with them. So I think there, there is a lot of support and the media doesn't look at that. You know, so the media, because when we talk about attention's gone from here, it's the media that's disappeared, not what's going on in the local community. So there are still good support. That's really positive to hear, Jennifer. I'm so glad to hear that. Just finally, very quickly, if you're somebody who has been flooded and you feel like the support is gone and you're sitting there in your damaged house feeling kind of down and feeling kind of low, what would be some of the – a couple of really positive things that you could do today to lift your spirits? Um, I think because the sun's come out and the weather's improved to try and maybe get out, keep in touch with neighbours, um, get together as a community. Um, that is very helpful to try not to, um, you know, put, have, have to experience that total isolation. But the other thing is reaching out for help, like with people who can counsel them and help them. And there is a lot of help now in our local community and not to feel as though they have to put up with it or get through it themselves. I think reaching out is an important thing. And, of course, I know a lot of people in these communities, they have a lot of faith to be prayerful to, um, and I find the local churches tend to minister to them, so that's another source of um, help. Yeah, and I think that's a fantastic one right there because, you know, all of your local churches are going to, you know, just more than welcome anybody in and give as much support as they possibly can. That's what we all do. Oh, they are. Yeah, and they're still doing that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Jennifer Skews, thank you so much for joining us here on The Breakfast Show this morning. We look forward to uh, continuing to hear your presentations over the next few weeks and months. Right now we're going to listen to Rain for Roots with Hello. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at one 800 Faith FM.